Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, all of us know or probably should know who Adam Smith is. He is the Scottish Enlightenment economist who wrote The Wealth of Nations, who made famous the idea of the invisible hand of the markets and talked about the butcher and the brewer and the, the baker and all that stuff. Anyways, before he wrote The Wealth of Nations, he wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments that's not really about economics. It's about how to live a good life and how to maneuver and manage the relationships that are closest to us, like family, community, and the like. Uh, and the end goal is to, to live a good and virtuous life. That's what he's trying to explore in the theory of moral sentiments. Our guest today has written a book about this little-known book of Adam Smith. His name is Russ Roberts, and his book is How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. Russ is a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's also the host of the podcast Econ Talk. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about what Adam Smith can teach us about living the good life, right? how to live a good and virtuous life, and how insights from 300 years ago from an economist, the first economist, can teach us about how to live a good life now, why celebrity culture is bad for the soul, why we often deceive ourselves in our goodness and how that can get in the way of our moral progress. We're going to talk about why we're so attracted to buying the latest gadget, even though we know it's not going to bring us happiness. So it's a fascinating podcast. I think you're really going to like this. So let's get on with the show. Russ Roberts, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Okay, so your book is called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. We're talking about Adam Smith, the father of economics, the invisible hand guy. And he's most famous for his book, The Wealth of Nations. But you took a look at a lesser known work of, of his called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with this work, could you just give a brief background of The Theory of Moral Sentiments? So it was his first book. He wrote it in 1759. He re- it was reprinted six times it was printed six different editions during his life including the last year of his life 1790 when he made some significant edits to it uh the wealth of nations came out in 1776 so this is the book that he wrote before the wealth of nations and kind of after it so i call it the book that was ever with him it is a book of what smith called moral philosophy that doesn't help us much what it's about it's a book about how we behave with each other it's a book how we what makes us tick what motivates us What brings serenity and tranquility and happiness to our lives? How do we interact with other people? Why is it that even though we're incredibly self-interested, we do selfless things, which seems like a a surprise? And Smith's really trying to understand our 
interactions at a micro, micro level, as opposed to his more famous book, The Wealth of Nations, which is really about markets and our commercial lives and how we trade and what that trade implies for our standard of living and for specialization and the whole range of economic activity. In this book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, he's trying to explain and understand how we behave with each other. And uh, in doing so, he gives us a lot of advice. And surprisingly, perhaps, it's very relevant for our lives today. Why do so few people know about it? Uh, it's hard to read. It's it's not organized in a particularly easy way to read. Uh, it's written in 1759, and, and so the sentences tend to be a little bit long. It's a little bit like Jane Austen. I sometimes call Smith the Jane Austen of economics. He has a beautiful prose style. He's still readable, but it's a style that most of us are not so accustomed to in 2014. And it's not very well organized. He couldn't use an editor, but he didn't have one, I guess. <laughs> so when I first read it, which I didn't do until quite late in my career, uh, I found it very daunting, and I put it down pretty quickly after I opened it. <laughs> I said, "This is this is hard," uh, and I but I stuck with it. And it it's um it's a beautiful book. It has wonderful insights into our. Our, our nature and wonderful advice uh, for life. Okay. So you just kind of alluded this to a little bit. So the wealth of nations is about how we're inherently selfish, but those selfish uh, interests sort of coalesce to something that it all works out in the end, right? With the invisible hand. Um, but the theory of moral sentiments is, has this sort of contrary idea that we're also altruistic. So how does the theory of moral sentiments complement the wealth of nations and how does Adam Smith make these two ideas that were selfish and altruistic jive together at the same time? Well, I wouldn't use the word selfish. I would use the word self-interested or, or self-centered, self, self-focused. We, we put ourselves first, and Smith says so. He says, you know, we think of ourselves as the center of the universe. Uh, but he then says, if we act that way, nobody's going to like us because they understand that there are other people around, including themselves. So what his argument is is that we're not inherently altruistic or compassionate, not particularly he calls that the feeble spark of benevolence. He says it's you know, that's not a very uh, a powerful way to get us to do the right thing or to be nice to other people. He says what well, the reason we're nice to other people, the reason we don't always put ourselves first is we care what other people think of us. And we look at the world around us. We see that when people do kind things, people smile at them or are nice to them. When people do selfish and mean things, they're not so nice to them and they're not so pleasant and cheerful. And we learn from that what's good and where – uh, what, what our culture expects of us and what other people expect of us. And we try to conform to that. And he says we act as if we have an impartial spectator watching us. We act as if someone who's not on our side, not on the other side, but someone just keeping an eye on us, what would that person say about us? And if we dis if that person would disapprove, that puts pressure on us not to be selfish, not to do the the self-interested thing all the time. So he's not he doesn't say we're saints. And he says in the heat of the moment, we forget about the impartial spectator and we kind of do what often what, what, what pleases us at the expense of other people. But he says nature has given us this way this, – and, and by, by this way, he means this desire to be approved of and to avoid disapproval is a very powerful way in which we sort of regulate ourselves, where, where people regulate each other. Um, he says man naturally desires not only to be loved but to be lovely. And by loved, he meant honored, respected, admired, and praised – and by lovely, he meant worthy of honor, respect, and praise and adm admiration. And so what he says – what he's saying is that what really brings us happiness is that when other people respect and honor us and when we earn that respect and honor honestly through our actions, not through what we imagine we're doing, not by deceiving other people. And it's a really beautiful idea for how we dance uh, with other people in this great 
uh, society that, that we swim in, right? We have all these people we interact with on a day-to-day basis, our family, our friends, our colleagues at work. And Smith's trying to understand what we do in those settings. And his, his answer is, is that there's a tension between our self-interest and the fact that we want other people to, to respect us. And that is what encourages sometimes at least to do the right thing. Okay, so is the, the impartial spectator like a conscience or is it like a sense of honor? Like what would be like, is it, is it driven, by, driven by guilt or shame? Well, since we're on the art of manliness, you know, in a way it's really Smith was, I think for his time, which was a very male centric time, uh, he was thinking about what's it take to be a gentleman, right? So you're, you're not the art of gentlemanliness, doesn't sound so good, but I think Smith was talking about what it takes to be a good person in his time. And it was his, he was thinking about a conscience, but what's distinctive about Smith's approach, he's telling us where that conscience comes from. And the obvious place is when, if you ask somebody, you know, why do people do the right thing? Why do they have a conscience? Where does it come from? I think people would say, well, they have religion, they have their parents, and certainly religion and parenting matters, has an, an impact on us. But Smith was saying that we don't really rely on that. What we really rely on is those people around us to keep us in line through their judgments and vice versa. We judge the people around us. And so he's really explaining where our conscience comes from in a very unusual way. Okay. So it does sort of, it seems like we care about what other people think about us. We do good. And there's sort of a self-interested motive in that, right? Because if you are lovely, there are benefits that come with that, correct? That's right. But unlike the standard economist way of looking at the world, which is it's all about costs and benefits, I don't think Smith was really saying that that was the way we behave. You could say that we act as if we were behaving that way. But what Smith really saw, I think, was a different kind of of way of looking at, at human nature and, and what motivates us when we face moral dilemmas and decisions about how to spend our time, the crucial things that make up our, our daily existence. He's really saying, you know, we don't always say, oh, what's it? What's in it for me? He's mm-hmm. saying, I might say that when I get on, on, on the web and shop for something, what's in it for me? But when I'm interacting with you and you're saying to me, can you give me a ride to the airport? And I say, well, gee, I got to finish that thing for work. But I said, I'm just because you're my friend, I'm going to do it. Not because I'm saying, oh, well, later he'll do it for me. I'm, I'm just doing because I think it's the right thing to do. And yes, I'll feel good about it. It's good to feel lovely. But just saying that's not why we do it. We do it because it's just the right thing to do. Gotcha. Okay, so this idea of being lovely, thats it's a word we don't really use that much anymore to describe a person, you know, Correct. your character. So, I mean, what did he mean by being lovely? So he had two things in mind, I think. And he, again, he didn't mean it the way we mean it, as you say. It wasn't uh, attractive, which is what lovely usually means in our um, our language, in America at least. Um, by although in, in in England, in the UK, lovely is a different is a phrase that people use all the time to mean I like it, right? Oh, that's lovely. Uh, but we don't we don't use it that way. We we use it to mean oh, it's a lovely lovely outfit. Uh, you might say about about somebody's clothing. But Smith meant it in a very um, broad way. He meant it, as I said, to to recognize the fact that we are worthy of respect and honor and admiration and praise. And to be lovely, he said, there are two things you have to do. You have to be proper. You have to act with pr- what he called propriety. And by that, he, he, pr- for us, propriety kind of means stiff and, un- and conformist. He meant conforming in a, in a good way. He meant conforming in the sense that if you have a tragedy or a success and you share it with someone, 
that person will try to respond in the way you'd like to be responded to and vice versa. Someone comes to you to tell you about a success or a tragedy. You try to empathize with their tragedy. You try to enjoy their success with them. And he explains that our ability to do that's very limited because we're not the other person. We're, we're, we're a separate person. And therefore, when we share our successes and tragedies with the people around us, we take into account how close or far away they are from us emotionally. So it's a very subtle and nuanced understanding of social interaction and, and what we would call perhaps manners or etiquette. But again, it's much more than that, that use of the word. So that's the minimum standards, propriety. So if you want to be lovely, you got to be proper. You've got to behave according to the norms of the society around you. But more than that, you have to be virtuous. And Smith saw three great virtues, uh, prudence, justice, and beneficence. Prudence, take care of yourself, take care of your body, take care of your financial life. Don't be reckless with either of them. Justice, don't hurt other people. Beneficence, help other people when you can and when it actually helps them, not just it looks like you're helping them. So Smith had this really beautiful idea of loveliness. And of course, it's easy to say, be nice to other people. That's very difficult. He understood that. He said the rules for beneficence are loose, vague, and indeterminate, unlike the rules for justice, which are black and white. Justice is pretty clear. Don't hit somebody over the head. Don't kill them. Don't steal their stuff. Uh, but beneficence, helping others, is much trickier. And he has a lot of interesting things to say about that. Uh, it's a lot of subtle and useful things to say about how to be a good person. Uh, but that was his. That was really his uh, his guideline. He said, you know, when because we want to be loved, he said the easiest way to be loved, the way most many people choose, is to be rich or famous or powerful. And he says that's the wrong way. He says the pursuit of wealth or fame or power, it will inevitably leave you unsatisfied and you'll do things along the way to get there that you're not going to be happy about or that are sh that are shameful and you'll regret later. So the first economist, the person who wrote The Wealth of Nations, says pursuing wealth is not really a great idea. It's not really worth it. Nothing wrong with having it, but you shouldn't uh, pursue it for its own sake. And uh, that's, I think, timeless advice, generally good advice. And uh, it's fun to hear it coming from the first economist. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. He's like, he had like a little bit of equation for happiness. Yeah. Um, and being lovely was part of that. Um, and money didn't play a, a role in that. I think it was just like, don't get into debt. Was Yeah, he says, uh, he says what more can be added to the happiness of a man who is, who is in health, uh, out of debt, and has a clean conscience? And uh, that's a paraphrase, but it's close. And he's, you know, what he's saying there is that if you pursue wealth for its own sake, you're going to end up without a clean conscience or you're going to end up in debt if you pursue material stuff. So uh, that's a, that, that'll get you a long way. Being satisfied with your health and, uh, and, a, and, your, um, and being debt free will get you a long way. Did Smith have any insights? Because I think one of the reasons why people decide to choose, you know, pursuing wealth or fame, because there's something tangible, right? When you have, you can look at your bank account and say, well, my bank account is higher than it was last year, but it's hard to say, well, I, am I, you know, I'm more virtuous than I was last year. I mean, did Smith ha provide any insights on how you track your progress in your, in becoming lovely? Not really. No. Uh, but it's a great, it's a great observation. I, w what he would add to it is that not only do you look, can you look at your bank account and see that it's higher than it was last year, you can look at your car in the driveway and see that it's nicer than your neighbors. And he says that that pushes us to acquire nicer cars and more gadgets because he's correct. People who are wealthy, people who are successful, people who are powerful, people who are famous, they get a lot of attention and people like that. They, they want that. So there's this natural uh, seduction that takes place where we are drawn to these things 
and Smith's counseling us to avoid that. So you make a great point. So Smith says, don't do that. Be lovely. How do you get, how do you give yourself that pat on the back the way your bank account does with your loveliness account? You know, a lot of people in this business, I'm not an expert on it, but I've read some of these books, you know, that, that encourage this kind of thing. There are a lot of ways we can do that. We can, we can keep a notebook. We could do a, uh, a, uh, accounting, uh, it's a in, in Judaism, you're encouraged at the end of the day to think about what you've done that day and whether you did the right thing or not. So it's not as dramatic as looking at the bank account and it's not as precise, but there are ways that we can keep track of, of the, our moral choices and to and to encourage ourselves to do the right thing. Smith, of course, also understood and he writes very eloquently on it that we are prone to deceive ourselves. So when we do something not so nice, we might leave that out of the bank account, whereas when we uh, spend money frivolously, it does leave the bank account, and we do see that it's gone. So it is much harder when we do the moral accounting and the kindness, the loveliness accounting, to do it uh, honestly and scrupulously. So uh, I, I encourage that. You know, Smith says that self-deception is responsible for half the disorders of of modern life, and he's he's onto something there. We we do tend to neglect our shortcomings and over remember our uh, good side. So uh, that's just a good general warning. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. 
Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use fast-growing trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on fast-growing trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast-growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor Meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code MANLINESS50 to get 50% off. That's code MANLINESS50 at factormeals.com slash MANLINESS50 to get 50% off. Check it out today, and make sure to check out the Creamy Pesto Pork Chop. It's really good. Yeah, he, I like the his insights about self-deception. Um, I mean, how, how do you overcome that? Because we do have a tendency to paint ourselves in a positive light, even though we might not... Uh, do great. You know, it's like a cognitive dissonance, right? Yeah, so sure. How, how do we overcome that? Well, what I suggest in the book, uh, Smith doesn't say this, but what I suggest in the book is that uh, you rely on some actual spectators, not just the uh, imaginary ones that Smith says sometimes we have in mind when we're trying to decide what to do. When you face a moral dilemma at work, say, or you have a cr- personal issue, you know, a friend wants you to come uh, visit, or you have a funeral to go to, or you have uh, a project at, uh, at work at the same time. You're trying to think, which should I work on? Your kid needs you to help with the homework, but you want to watch the football game. It's always easy to convince ourselves that the personal benefit thing is the right thing. Oh, I need to watch the football game because then I'll be able to help my kids even better later because I'll be more relaxed. You know, we'll ha- we have stories we tell ourselves. Oh, there'll be a lot of people at the funeral. I don't need to go. She won't miss me. It'll be okay. And I found that, you know, it's better to have uh, and Smith does suggest something along these lines. It's better to have hard and fast rules. You know, I almost always try to go to a funeral of, where a friend has, ha- has had a loss. Uh, it's true that any one time, it's not the end of the world if you skip it, but you'll often find yourself skipping lots of them, and then you'll miss a chance to comfort a friend. And um, Smith understood there's a slippery slope in life, that if you start justifying things as, as being good when they're maybe just self-interested, uh, you'll often choose the self-interested thing. Uh, without really doing the right thing. So what I suggest, besides having some hard and fast rules, is ask people, ask ask your spouse, ask your friend, say, I'm in this situation, what do you think the right thing to do is? And a good friend who's honest will, will suggest to you, well, 
you know, from the outside, it looks pretty clear. You ought to do X. Uh, whereas sometimes from the inside, you can, you're always going to say, oh, well, I'm sure that the best thing to do is, is why when that, that's actually the thing that I want because it benefits me. Yeah. You made a good point in the book where you talked about don't deceive yourself that you don't, you aren't deceivable, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think I have a tendency to do that. It's like, oh, I, I read all these psychology books that I, where I'm like, yeah, you know, we, we deceive ourselves all the time. Okay. I, I can't deceive myself, but I, I know that I'm probably doing it even though I don't know I'm doing it. Yeah, and I spend a lot of time thinking about self-deception, and I still fool myself sometimes. Uh, of course, it's a human frailty, and it's you know it's very common. Uh, it was a great uh, internet meme this this last couple of weeks over the election. It had a a picture of um, Obi Wan Kenobi from Star Wars. It said, "This is what my my politician looks like." And then there was a picture of Darth Vader. This is what the other guy's politician looks like. Then there was a picture of. Um, is it Jojo Binks? Is that his name? Yeah. Says, says that's what he's, but that's what they're both like. But you know, our, my guy, my guy's great. It's that other guy that's awful. Or we do that in, you know, in economics, you know, my theories, my models, they've got all the evidence, the other side's evidence, that's crummy evidence. And it, we see a report or a study we don't like, it's really easy to find the things that are wrong with it. But somehow your study, the one that supports your side or my side, I go, Oh no, that's, that's perfect. And so there is this terrible temptation to over, state the quality of one's own stuff and be skeptical about the other side. And we should be more open-minded and a little more humble, I think. Okay. Um, so I thought this was interesting. Smith had some insight uh, over 300 years ago about why we feel compelled to buy the latest iPod <laughs> or the latest, you know, gadget, even though, you know, we, I think we know in the back of our mind that we're going to get quickly, get used to it. Yeah. Uh, so what did Smith say? I had to say about the, the, you know, so he, this? he warned against uh, trinkets of frivolous utility is what he called them. Uh, things that that we like to show off and and impress people with, uh, and he says they don't really make our lives that much better. They, they we like them because they do their job so elegantly. They're impressive, and I my example of that in the book is uh, you know I have so many apps on my iPhone that I bought just because I love what they could do what they do. You know I have, I have somebody's DNA mapped out on my iPhone that you can you can get, and you think that's just so cool, but it really doesn't make your life any better. It's just a beautiful thing. And and if you're not careful, you could accumulate those things and you can find yourself uh, not, it's not a tragedy that you have too many apps on your iPhone. The tragedy is when you uh, spend money on stuff that doesn't really bring much of a return. And Smith was warning us about uh, gadgets as a, as a way of, um, of spending our money that might not be a fruitful way to spend our money. The interesting question is what kind of gadgets that they have in 1759. And he lists an ear picker, a toothpick, a machine for cutting the nails, not that exciting. And yet in 1759, people showed those things off the way we do. And he ironically, right, this is right after the, just about a month ago, uh, Tim Cook of Apple announced the new Apple watch. And he's talking about how uh, accurate it is. And I'm thinking that's kind of funny. My book comes out, comes out right around the same time when Smith in his book says, this is a crazy thing. People will spend a premium. They'll pay a huge amount extra for a watch. It's a little more accurate. It doesn't make them any more punctual. Yeah. They're still not on time for their meetings or appointments. And of course, we know that's true. Having the Apple watch, which is going to be accurate to some number, some, I think it's five milliseconds, is not going to make anybody more uh, productive as a worker because there's improvement over the iPhone, which might be off by 20 seconds. Oh, the horror. So Smith was, uh, he's onto something there, even in 1759. Yeah. I do that all the time with, uh, like my, you know, using to justify my smartphone, like, Oh, you know, I, I can get all these apps, right. And it'll make yeah. me more productive and like, yeah, no, 
it's it's not. I, I could use pen and paper and I'd be just as productive. A lot of times, yeah. A lot of times. Okay, so uh, right now, currently, into the 21st century, we are a celebrity culture. I mean, everyone wants to be famous. I think they've done polls on young people and like young people today would rather be famous than, you know, have money or do good or so, but no one really thinks about the costs that come with fame, but Smith thought about this. Um, yeah. What do you say about the cost that comes with, with fame? So he's very eloquent on this and, uh, he understood that we want to be famous because we want to be loved. As he said, it's, it's inside us. It's hard. We're hardwired to, to want attention. And uh, as we said earlier, he says the right way to do that is to be a good person. The wrong way is to get is to try to be famous, for example. And what he says about it is that you know you, you get fame by doing a lot of things that are not so attractive. That's number one. Uh, in his in his time, he's talking about people who you know climbed the ranks in court in the royal societies of his day. The, it's an amazing. Uh, you know, time they didn't have cable television or anything uh, like like we have or talk radio, but uh, in his day they still had celebrities and still had people who cared about about being famous. So he says it's a bad idea. He says it's not good for you. And one of his best examples, I don't use this in the book, in my book, but it's uh, it's a great example. He talks about the king of Macedon. And the king of Macedon was a uh, a con was conquered by the Romans, and he's led through the streets, and he says, you know, he's miserable. And he says, why is he miserable? You know, he's he's been captured by a humane people. They're going to take care of him. They're going to feed him. They're basically going to put him under house arrest. He's not going to be tortured. He's not going to be killed like the the Zarb and the revolution. He's just going to be – he's going to lose his kingdom. And he says, boy, look how depressed he is about that. And why is he depressed? He says depressed because nobody's going to fawn over him anymore. No one's going to be sucking up to him. He's not going to get any of that thrill he used to get whenever he was paying attention to him. Saying, you know, He's basically saying, isn't this pitiful? This is so unattractive. And so he says, if if you pursue fame and you lose it, and people don't pay attention to it anymore, it's just it's the worst because you you become essentially addicted to to the attention that other people give you. And he also talked about how you sort of uh, become restricted uh, the more famous you get, like your choices become because the more people know about you, you have to be more concerned about your security um, and like you know where you know who are around. You can't be as free roaming as you were when oh, people for sure. know you. Absolutely. Um, so I, I'm guessing it sounds like fame is sort of a counterfeit loveliness. Would that be a good way to describe it? Well, it's a counter. It's it's not counterfeit. It is. It it, it it's a. He he basically says it's the glittering path that that draws us. Fame and money and power draws us to those things because as we know, people are going to pay attention to us. But uh, he's you know he's saying stay away from that stuff. It's bad. Okay. Uh, so he had some insights on how us focusing on being good, lovely, and virtuous can actually contribute to a better world, like small actions on our part. Can you brief – I know it's sort of nuanced and complex, but can you briefly describe what Smith had to say about how just little small actions on our part can contribute to a better world? Yeah. What he's saying is that the culture that we live in, the expectations of the people around us and and what we can expect from them – uh, that all comes from our own personal individual actions and come from anywhere else. There's no memo that goes out and says, be trustworthy. Uh, and yet we live in a culture in America that's pretty trustworthy. And I give examples in the book of when I was in situations where somebody trusted me and I trusted them and it worked out. Of course, it doesn't always work out, but it's remarkable how often it works out in a world where there's no, often no real cost other than shame and embarrassment. 
uh, you're not likely to get sued for being uh, dishonorable in those situations. And when you, I give the example often, you buy a house, there's this really complicated contract you sign, but there's a lot of things, thousands of things that don't go into the contract. They're just sort of accepted that, you know, you leave the house clean. You don't, there's no details about how clean it has to be because you can't really specify that. And yet, Everybody understands that you can't leave the house a mess when you leave, and most people don't. They don't take advantage of the fact that it's not in the contract. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And Smith says, where does that come from? He says, it comes from the fact that we watch the people around us. We see what's honorable. We see what's dishonorable. And we try to do mostly what's honorable. And we're lucky in America to live in a world where what's honorable is to be trustworthy for most people. In other cultures, being a, uh, trustworthy is a sucker. You know, being being uh, give it, passing up a chance to to take somebody's money, it's like you're a fool. But in America, it's like honored if you don't if you if you give up a chance to steal something from somebody, take advantage of a something left out of the contract, and that's just a great thing. And where that comes from is from us. It comes from our choices that we make on a day to day basis about how to behave with each other. And Smith saying that if, you know if you want to make the world a better place. Make a contribution to that. Be honorable and honor people who are honorable and dishonor people who are dishonorable. Judge them accordingly. Don't just let things go sometimes. And when you have a chance to do the right thing, do the right thing. And it's tempting to say any one thing, oh, what's the big difference? But Smith says all those actions add up and eventually, not eventually, together they create a culture. And we we have a good one. We should honor it and, and try to sustain it. How do you like dishonor? Because I feel like we're kind of uncomfortable with that this days of like making people feel bad. Yeah, we are. So, I mean, how do you do that? I mean, do you have any... Well, we're not, as, we're not as judgmental as I think people were in Smith's time. In Smith's time, if you did the wrong thing, uh, there's a lot more stigma and a lot more shame, I think. We're encouraged in America to not feel shame, not feel guilty. Uh, and I think, I don't, you know, there's something good about that, but I do think we paid a price in that it does tend to, if we're not careful, make us less responsible and to be a little more selfish. Um but being judgmental is, is a strong phrase. I think what Smith had in mind was very subtle. It wasn't just, oh, if your friend does something uh, that's not that's not 100 uh, percent great, you should then stop being friends with them. That's not what he meant. What he meant was, you know, there's an enormous range of judgment and and praise that we give people. We, we can raise an eyebrow. Uh, somebody tells a, a joke that's in bad taste, that's cruel, say, to somebody that we we're, we know. And it's sometimes it's funny and it's fun to sometimes make fun of other people. And Smith, I think, would say, you know, that's wrong. So what do you do when someone tells a joke like that at work or, you know, hanging out with your buddies? You know, what should you what should your response be? Should you say that's a cruel joke? Shame on you. Well, that kind of language doesn't fly very well in 2014, but you don't have to laugh and you can kind of make a you can raise an eyebrow and say eh, you can make a noise. And if somebody does that all the time, you can stop hanging out with them. So there's an enormous range of ways that we respond socially, I think, to appropriate and inappropriate behavior. And our age has a different set than Smith did, but it's still the same idea. Same idea. Okay. Um, so this has been a fascinating discussion. I know we just scratched the surface, but uh, besides going out and buy your book, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, you can go to my website, rustroberts.info. Uh, you can listen to my weekly podcast, Econ Talk, where every Monday at 6.30 a.m., uh, release an interview. We have over 425 episodes that we uh, that we keep up there. And uh, those would be the best ways, I'd say. Fantastic. Well, Russ Roberts, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
Our guest today is Russ Roberts. He is the author of the book, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And you can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And you can also check out his website, russroberts.info. Or if you're interested in economics, you can listen to his podcast. It's econtalk.org. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And today in the podcast, we were talking about becoming virtuous in order to be lovely and happy. Well, we just recently launched a new journal slash record keeper inspired by Benjamin Franklin's 13 Virtues chart. Uh, It's a really cool journal that's bound in leather, really nice looking. You can find those in the Art of Manliness store. That's at store.artofmanliness.com. Makes a great gift for the men in your life for the holiday season. So there you go. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.